Hi, I'm Alex Helmbrecht, and I'm joined here with my co-host, as always, Daniel Binkert. Welcome to the Farcast. Our guest today is Dr. Matthew Brust, uh, a professor of physical and life sciences, I suppose is the uh, official title, but uh, I mean, how, how do you introduce yourself to people and say, hey, I teach at college? What, what's Bi your... Biology what? professor, I Biology guess. professor, okay. <laughs> oh, that's right. good. It's always... Uh, to me, physical and life sciences sound so vague. It's almost like saying you work in college relations. You're like, well, what is that? Yeah. And that's a broader sense because the life sciences refers to the biology side, and then the physical would be things like geoscience, chemistry, stuff like that. Sure, so, sure. So it's kind of a bigger umbrella, so to speak. Oh, yeah. You guys get a lot done in that soon-to-be new building. Yeah. Uh, to not to answer a potential question coming up. Yeah. I'm looking insanely forward to <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> well, before, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, um, Matt, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Uh, yeah. And, and so actually, it's kind of funny because this time of year, I get to, in the fall, I get to talking about how I miss edible mushroom collecting because of where I grew up. Because I actually grew up in Wisconsin. I grew up in a suburb of Milwaukee, Menominee Falls, which is, at the time, it was more farms back then. Now it's mostly subdivisions. So I grew up there and, of course, spent a lot, did a lot of fishing and stuff like that. And obviously, into bugs as you guys well know, I started that at an early age. And then it's kind of an interesting story that I then I went out of, out of high school. I went to a local college for three years, got my associate's degree. And then it was interesting. My, my Most of my high school years were a little rough because I did lose. When I was a freshman, I lost a younger brother to neuroblastoma cancer when he was in eighth grade. So that was rough. Then my parents divorced my senior year of high school. And so, so it was a lot of ideas that I had that I wanted to do for a career, but then my grades weren't as good because of those stresses. And so, so I got my associate's degree and then I actually, I was working full-time school, full-time. I actually dropped out of college for seven years. And so I spent seven years in the machining industry. So I was a foreman okay. for a while. And it's kind of interesting because, you know, that's helped me a lot because, you know, I, I, I kind of always, you know, I never want to be an administrator, but I also understand how they think because, you know, I understand how business works. Mm -hmm. And so that was a really nice background to have. But it also taught me a lot of good time management skills because I not only had to, when I was a foreman, not on my own time, but I had to manage my employees' time sure. and stuff like that. So that taught me a lot of good lessons in life. And so I did a lot of maturing over the seven years, but I got to this crossroads of, I'll say this about the machining industry. It, for a person that's relatively smart, it does get to be very boring and monotonous. Money's yeah. all good, but so I got to this crossroads of life. I remember I got laid off from the one place because the Asian market collapsed. And I, so I had the summer off collecting unemployment. And I got to think about, you know, I really like to go back to school. So I, I got that set up and I did my undergrad, finished up my uh, undergrad at University of Wisconsin Stevens Point. So a really good natural resource with biology programs. So did that in three more years, and then that wasn't that bad. Took a semester off. Uh, trying to figure out who to, what to do. I wanted to study insects. And so what I, the trade-off, you know, anybody thinking about grad school is you got two ideas. Is you can either just try to find, well, I want to study this. But then you might be stuck with an advisor you don't like. So I was more concerned about, I want to study what I want. Can I find an advisor that's up my alley? So I did a yeah. lot of looking up online, phone calls, because sometimes what it says on their webpage and what they actually study aren't the same thing. And I just happened to hook up with Dr. Hoback, who was a Carney at the time. And he's kind of a jack of many trades. So and I still co-author papers with him all the time. I work with him a lot. And so I did my master's in Carney and biology with an emphasis in entomology, took another semester off, did my PhD in Lincoln, and then I wound up here. And so, yeah, and I, I, I like Nebraska. One of the things I, you know, I do miss 
some things in Wisconsin, like, you know, again, edible mushroom foraging and stuff like that. But I don't miss the humidity. But I'm not so much of a people person. I don't miss the city. And so that's one of the things I love about Shatteron is I go back to Milwaukee, and that traffic just stresses me out. Living in Lincoln, for instance, you guys have been there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do not like traffic. Like yeah, we're a little bit quieter here. <laughs> so, Matt, you've now been at CSC for, it's been probably 10 years or no, uh, more 15, than 10 years. 16, Getting it there. Like yeah, I got my 15-year thing last year, I think. There so. we go. Well, I lose track. You know how it is at our age. you got to remember <laughs> what year you were born. <laughs> well, what are some of the changes that you've experienced here over the 15 years now? Uh, oh, gosh. It's amazing, really. I mean, some of the people that have come and gone, I mean, that have impacted me. Like, one, I was just thinking in in math that it's such an unfortunate thing. I never had a chance to get to know him, but I heard so many great things about him was uh, Monty Fickle. Yeah. You know, and I just met him that first year. Uh, Ron Whedon was another one. I just right. missed that guy. He was something else. And, and so a lot of the, 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 the way that we did things back then... The technology is just incredible how it's mm-hmm. changed. Some good, some bad. You mm-hmm. know, I look back at the way, how, you know, I haven't, and I'm sure you guys do this, think back of, how did we manage to teach back then? It does seem <laughs> kind of strange. Yeah, <laughs> back to processes you know, that we had. Yeah, we're you know, getting older. and stuff like that. Yeah. And, but, but, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the changes have been subtle. But at the same time, again, you know, at a small college, you know, before this, mm-hmm. we were talking about, you know, the when I took that biological illustration courses, being a small school, how one professor has such a yeah. big impact. Like we were talking about Dr. Bird back in, in, in art department. Yeah. I mean, he was just such a neat guy, but he was such a unique, I mean, taught classes that everybody loved. And you can't find anybody that teaches those classes hardly anymore. Yeah, some of those changes and, get to and be so difficult. And so I've seen a lot of that. So a lot of people come and go, administrative changes. But at the same time, I would say the the overall sense of what CSC is, I don't think it's changed at all. I mean, we're right. still very uh, strong community-oriented college that we seem to balance two things really well. And I'll say I always constantly am reviewing this in my head. How do I do this the best, especially freshman courses, is to provide a high-quality education while still accepting the fact that we're in an open enrollment college. And that's a a tough thing to balance Mm -hmm. because, you know, we want to help every student be successful. And there are, unfortunately, some that can't make it, but... It, it requires us to put on a lot of our own extra time, but I think we're a unique be- bunch of people here that are willing to do it. I mean, I'll admit, if I if I just wanted to work 40 hours a week, I'd go back to machining. Right. But, you know, what was I doing? Making my boss happy. I don't mind working, you know, 60, 70, sometimes even 80, 90 hours a week because I like what I do. And the summers, I mean, I don't have to do research. That's when I do it. But, you know, I can't complain about the fact that yeah. I did summers off and stuff like that yeah and but the, but you look back in the, the people we train i was just telling somebody about you guys probably remember garrett gilkey mm-hmm. and his yeah, story sure. he's just such a neat story oh you know pre-hop you know our hop pre-med want to play in the nfl now he's a highly successful businessman i mean so many stories like that out of this school so i think yeah. while a lot of smaller things have changed what csc is all about i don't think it's changed a bit and, well, maybe, that's a good way of looking at it. Maybe one of the the, the biggest changes that I, I think people at least physically see is is, is the large tangible building of, of oh, the math science. Yeah, it's it's just so overdue. I mean, I it's kind of funny. I was joking. I got fish that are in my basement now, tanks that I'm looking so poor to putting back in my lab because they don't like being in my basement. <laughs> Some of these <laughs> are native not. species that are you know somewhere like seven years old. My students yeah. loved them. It was a nice, just something to make a relaxing atmosphere in the lab and stuff like that. So having our own room because I don't want to. I don't know if that's your that I question yet, but sort of how has it been teaching in that building? Oh yeah, no, it, it's. Uh, you know, it's kind of a two-part question. How how excited are you and your colleagues to, to actually teach in that building beginning hopefully next fall? Yep. Um, I think and everything's still on schedule. schedule. Yeah. And, and then 
how's that going to impact student learning? How's it going to impact the region? You know, that's a, a kind of an interesting question because I think the first part is easy to answer. I think every one of us is looking so forward to it. I mean, you know, we've gotten kind of used to the building, but there's so many things. It's been so hard, you know, because I usually have my own lab. Now we're having four different classes sharing a lab space. And it's very difficult, like students with athletics trying to make things up. I mean, like, for instance, today I normally have specimens on the lab for my zoology students to study for their lab exam next week. But because that room is being used five days a week, I can't do right. that. So I had to email my students last week and tell them, I wish I could, but, you know, so if you guys can do Quizlets or something like that, whatever works for you guys. And, to, and I and I don't mean to interrupt you, but I, I don't know that if if you'd seen them before, but Daniel and I were involved with a, a video shoot when a, um, an agency was out here, and we actually shot some scenes inside one of those temporary labs. And I, I just want to commend you and the other faculty who use those spaces. I mean, they're certainly usable spaces. But it's not. It's not, <laughs> it's not a lab. It's not the I mean, not the same yeah, as you know, what they're but, getting. So yeah, but at the same just time, I will also say that the students we get. I think you, you get just some wonderful students that are understanding of that too. Yeah, right? absolutely. You know? and I think a lot of them too already know that we're getting a new building next year, so we just got to sit out this one more semester yet. Yeah, it's and, like the the wait before Christmas. And the problem is that's just you're exactly right because that's the way I'm feeling. Like one more semester, one more yeah. semester of this, and so. But yeah, we're looking so forward to it. Now, as far as the impact, I'm one of those people being a scientist, I just don't like to try to make predictions. I know people love when us scientists do it, and then they get mad at us when we're wrong. We're wrong like half the time. I won't deny that, but that's just part of the beast. But, but you know, I think the potential is going to be huge because one of the biggest problems we've had in the old building is just not enough space. You know, and you're, when you're limited in space, that limits so many other things. And now the technology, that's another place where we are getting some. I mean, there's some I wish we could afford, but... You know, I think that's going to be a big thing. But what if you don't have the space, where are you going to put this new technology sure. anyway? So, you know, I know a lot of people have told me they think it's going to be a huge game changer. I maybe, you could always say I'm a little more of a cynic or a pessimist. I think it'll be a game changer. It's just I'm on the fence and trying to predict how much so. I'm one of those people that just, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I, it's I always more the more to have. And I, I remember walking through that building after they had cleared most of the stuff out and getting ready for demolition of those interior spaces oh, and just how much how much had been stuffed into that place yeah. and it's like seemed bigger on the inside than it looks on the outside and still stuffed to the gills and if you know anything about scientists we're pack rats you gotta be a pack rat <laughs> well that, that, that's <laughs> so. maybe a good segue to our next question <laughs> we Talk are about as guilty as anybody your, your teaching areas Matt uh, which let's see the list here zoology entomology ornithology all the ologies or at least uh, <laughs> a bunch of the ologies <laughs> So for uh, a, a non-science, yeah, we'll throw those. But uh, f oh, for your teaching areas, areas, especially some geoscience, I've had a couple of courses in that area too. Oh yeah, I just wouldn't teach them. But <laughs> <laughs> so for uh, non-scientists in the audience, um, how would you describe the areas that you teach? What's, what's the layman's perspective? Okay, on so that? some of those like ornithology is a really fun course for I, I think a lot just about anybody would love a course like that. It's basically bird biology. I love birds, and it's yeah. just a fun course. I mean, one of the neatest things you'll learn calls, and you'll learn a lot about their just life habits, things like that. And birds are just such, such neat organisms. Mm -hmm. So ornith refers to birds. Uh, limnology is one I teach. It's basically aquatic ecosystems. Okay. So I, I insert a little bit of ichthyology, so basically fish in there, because who doesn't love fish? And, you know, and there's a lot of demand for fisheries biologists, if you have at least some background, even if you're just going to be a technician with game and parks, knowing a bit about fish is pretty important. Oh, yeah. And then... Uh, uh, entomology, that's my main forte, is insects, so ento, which is often referred with, <laughs> inter, you know, what is the other one? Uh, 
etymologist yeah. studying entomology. <laughs> it's always funny getting those mixed up. And then uh, parasitology, obviously parasites. That's one of my favorite. It grosses people up. And the world is just ruled by parasites, sadly. It does seem to be sad. sometimes, doesn't Even it? human society, sadly, sometimes <laughs> what, is. What, what, are, what, are, what What's like the... What's the what's like the the definition between when when does something not no longer studied in entomology and becomes a parasitology? Well, there's actually quite a bit of overlap. Oh, okay. In fact, I had a whole lecture on parasitic insects in my entomology course because you just can't get around that. When you look at like mosquito-borne diseases, yeah, like stuff true. like that. So there is a lot of overlap, and that's one of the, the great. I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of the things in science is there is a lot of overlap in certain sure. things where certain things just fit more in one category. So, whereas entomology, I've to cover it all. In fact, my entomology course, we cover some really fun topics like insects as food. We I've actually went to labs. The students dig through like flour, and they got to quantify little insect body parts they find under a scope, and it kind of grosses them out because there are some. I mean, unfortunately, never, never close to threshold where they'd reject. And then you it, have but. them make cookies afterwards. <laughs> well, I haven't done that, but still. But you know, they do some things like that. It just you know the impact in society and things like that because it, it's just one of those courses that lends itself really good to that. And then like zoology is my main freshman course, and that's uh, basically zo meaning animals. And so basically it's an animal biology course. I also teach a course that I kind of inherited because of somebody leaving that, again, it's just a fascinating course to teach. It's comparative anatomy and physiology. Okay. So it's basically just all the vertebrates. And we march up comparing, you know, different derivations in the anatomy and the different functionality. And that, I love teaching that course. That is just such a cool form and function course. And it really helps you understand our own bodies and sort of like sure. all the fun things. I mean, it's always fun to talk about how muscle works and how yeah. you how you can beat a guy twice your size in an arm wrestle if you understand the mechanics of musculature at the, yeah, at the, the cellular level. <laughs> That's kind of cool. And just stuff like that. There's so many cool courses and things in that course. Absolutely. So, um, the uh, and sorry to go back to the, the parasites, but you know, it's just a fun word to say, but parasites. Why, why, do, they, yes. why do they exist? What's the, what's the okay, reason? Okay, well, that's, and I, it's funny because that's the question I always get is, people, I think we as humans, we have this anthropocentric view thinking everything needs to have a purpose. And the problem is, from an evolutionary standpoint, a lot of things exist because they can. They haven't gone extinct. Ah. And in fact, parasites, it makes sense. In fact, some estimates now are, although beetles are currently considered the most diverse insects, it's estimated that as many as 10 times as many parasitic wasp species exist than we've discovered. And the reason wow. for that is, if you think of everything in ecology, it's just energy flow. And by being a parasite, you save energy. Basically, you don't have to find your food. You can scarf it. You know, in the humans, like I always use a classic example of, you know, the person when I was a machinist always borrows a cigarette from me. Yeah, you never get one back. And they just yeah. take and they get. And, and in the biological world, it's the same way. Because then they can they can use that savings and dump it into more reproduction, so they're more likely to not go extinct. Mm. So this idea, and, and you know, some of these do even ticks. I mean, you could say, well, what do good do ticks do? Well, turkeys love eating them. I mean, turkeys eat lots of ticks, thankfully. <laughs> but you we know, love them for it. Now tapeworms, I've never figured out a purpose for tapeworms, but they're that same thing. They exist sure. kind of because they've managed to be there. I mean, yeah. you can't get rid of the darn things. <laughs> so. uh, ticks are the one that they, oh, they just give me the heebie-jeebies. Yeah, they're, they're, they're dangerous. Yeah. There's several dangerous diseases around. I mean, you hear a lot about, uh, you know, Lyme disease, but in this part of the country, really the scary one is Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. Right. Yep. Just in my time, I know three of our former students that have had it. Yeah. And they all have permanent damage yep. from it. Mm. Yeah, it's not good. It's not a common one, but you just never know, and it can kill you. Mm. Yep. 
So maybe a, a uh, more fun topic. You have some <laughs> interests in uh, photography, and uh, and you told me this uh, specifically on, on the sidewalk one time in citizen science dealing with entomology. Talk a little bit about yeah, that. So I have, I've, I've been into <laughs> photography since I was a little kid. I mean, I, you know, I, I had the little pocket Polaroid cameras, and of course, I remember the old days. You spent a fortune just trying to get a lightning strike because you had to buy the roll of film. Oh and get no, it you went down that rabbit hole. <laughs> oh yeah, I wasted a lot of money trying to get a good lightning strike. Oh yeah, you, poor, you know, you know. $5 an hour job back in the day. But <laughs> but I got into it, and I've gotten really good at it, actually. I don't want to toot my own horn, but, you know, and it's funny because I get these insect photos I take that end up sometimes in textbooks. What people don't realize, I do this all with a little pocket-sized point-and-shoot because some of those are actually pretty darn good if you mm. want to operate them. I mean, I know yeah. you would use those big cameras. No, but that's the I advantage can... of that small format, more depth of field. <laughs> yep, exactly. It's very nice. Because the other way. thing you don't realize with those big telephotos, like you can do, but you got that problem of shake. That's yeah. why you have to have a tripod. Yeah. With these pocket-sized ones, I can get close enough. I stay a little bit out to maintain my oh, depth yeah. of the field, but the shake issue is not as bad at that short distance. It's sort of less, I guess you could say, static in between. And so I can get nice, crisp, clear shots with just these cheap little cameras. In fact, I buy them used on eBay. Oh, yeah. I think yeah, I've spent 150 bucks on a camera in 10 years. Mm -hmm. you, I, you have a few point-and-clicks. Point-and-shoots? Yeah, point-and-shoots. Yeah, point-and-shoots. Point point shoots. Shoots. Yeah, and especially being able to get them used. Yeah, because yeah. I, I, the reason I buy the old it. ones is I like I still I don't like those charger batteries. I still like to use double A's. Oh, you're going really old school. Oh with yeah, it, I, yeah, I do. I like 90s yeah. technology, man. <laughs> sure. Early 2000s. But they made you know these newer. I don't like the newer point and shoots, like pocket size ones. The bigger ones, the SLRs are nice, but the little ones, I I think they've gone backwards. And most of them yeah. aren't as good at macro anyway, which is what I mostly do. But we're always trying to strike that balance. Yeah, and you and you nailed it when you said it's depth of field because to me that's everything. Yeah. You know, I can approach a lot of insects to, within 10 inches. Nobody else can. In fact, I fun what I do for over for grasshoppers. I actually tire them out. You don't think you can do it? You can tire out a grasshopper a lot more easily. And then if you you can actually get them to crawl on your finger for a little bit. They, they're angry when you do it. But <laughs> How do you tire a grasshopper out? I could get into it. It's a little like they, but they don't have the I'm just thinking thing. of like a like a like a battery of exercises that they have to do. Pretty like, much, like you know, they, they jump about sixty-eight times in rapid succession. They can't, they lose their oomph in the hind legs. Hmm. They can't jump that many times in a row without getting tired. This, 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 this is how humans them. evolve. We just keep chasing them down. Well, that's and actually there's truth to that because if you think about it, in Africa, our ancestors. That's yeah. one of the things of why we're able to hunt a lot of the big game, like even deer. They can run faster than us, but really, especially in spring, you can outdistance a deer on foot. You just keep walking, and eventually you'll tire them out. Yeah. <laughs> so, We're tenacious like that. <laughs> yeah, we are. We have great long-term. And so, and, gra and grasshoppers don't have that, actually. It's kind of funny. Mm -hmm. So, but, but yeah, and so there's that. So the photography, and I, I just like doing it as a hobby and providing resources so people can, you know, like I would eventually like to redo the Grasshoppers Nebraska book. But I'd actually prefer to use live photos for that because you get some discoloration, which is the opposite of bird field guides. Because bird field guides, you're actually better to have a painting because you never get them at the perfect angle. Whereas insects, you kind of oh can. yeah, yeah, shade and sunlight, and which is that. actually perfect drawing to go to your citizen science thing yeah. because that involves a lot of it's involving photography now. So one of the problems we have is I'm mostly a conservation biologist. I still work a lot with my home state of Wisconsin, um, out here in Nebraska with Nebraska Game Parks. And one of the things we're running into is there are not many entomologists like me out there. In fact, there's very few. There are very few, you know, plant identifiers like Steve Rolsmeyer, and we're getting old. And you know, and but the problem is, you know, it's not about uh, just us anymore. It used to be, you know, I like to say, as you well know, is photography used to be a rich person sport. That's not the case anymore. 
The average yeah. person can get excellent photos. And with these iPhones and things like that, you can have GPS data. It records the date. And as an insect collector that puts things in a collection of museum, to me, the only real important data is what is it? Where did I find it? When did I collect it? And who caught it? You can associate that all with an image. And so with, so with citizen science, so what we're trying to do, and I know Wisconsin, they're really pushing me on this, is we know there's a lot of data we could get on these things, but with just me, I can't do it all. But with these little cameras, people, they don't have to know what they photograph. There's so many naturalists out there that are just like being out there and photographing stuff, but they don't know what it is. And some of them are willing to learn, but some of them it takes a lot of time, and so it could be a little overwhelming. But a lot of them are willing to just have fun shooting photos and submit them, and we can do the identification. But the nice thing is then when they submit them, we have those data associated, so we can say, wow, this is new for that county, right. and things like that. Now, the full circle part of that is, well, why are those data important? Is because one of the things is, if it's a rare species, for one, we can now get a better handle on where they are and where they're not. And then we can determine, are they as rare as they thought, or maybe they are. The second one is, for instance, how do we know if the world has changed? So one of the things people ask, well, how do we know global warming is occurring? Well, on the one hand, we can say direct evidence. Well, you'll get the temperatures, yes, especially in the last month. 50 years, and then there's indirect glacial melting, but one of the things, we're seeing it in the wildlife too, like there's, you know, butterflies, just in my lifetime, there's a number of butterflies that I've literally seen recede about 1,200 feet in elevation here in the West just in my lifetime. I can't find them at elevations I used to. Okay. There are several butterflies that have virtually disappeared from the whole Nebraska panhandle just in the last 30 years mm. for totally unknown reasons. And so the, the question of, well, how do we know they disappeared? Well, if we have baseline data that we're here, they were right. here, and we can say, well, we were sampling, nobody's seeing them, we can pretty confidently say, well, they're not here anymore. And, you know, you know, several bumblebees. Bumblebees are a big area that, again, the western bumblebee, Randy Lawson, before me, he's got quite a few specimens he collected around here in the 1980s. Nobody's seen them since. So, again, so so it's a bit of, so there's conservation, there's evidence that, you know, what are, are things changing on us, what can we do about it? And so the citizen science part is, now one thing I am going back to photography, the, the citizen science, so I just made a thing for lady beetles, basically ladybugs for Nebraska game and parks. Now it's not going to be public for another year. I'm just putting it, I'll say that we're working on something mm -hmm. like that. So if anybody knows that, I don't care because it's something to look forward to. But one of the things that I'm doing, I'm, I got one going for, we already have one for tiger beetles in Wisconsin. We're working on, when we're doing these through iNaturalist, which is a website again. And so we're working on one for grasshoppers, but what I'm doing in, on the loading page is I'm having a description and examples because one of the things that is important to us is there's certain angles you want to get to be able to do the identification. So yes, it's nice people just take photos, but you know if you have the chance, you know for grasshoppers for instance, if you can get a perfect side profile view and a dorsal view, those two I can identify just about anything. Ladybugs, you really need three angles. You want kind of a face shot, a back shot, and a side shot. But you get those three, I can pretty much identify most of them. And so once again, and so if people are aware of that, then they can decisively try to. And I think for the citizen, it's kind of fulfilling because 20 years ago, the average citizen couldn't contribute much to science. Yeah. Now I think, I can't say this for sure because I'm not a non-scientist, but I'm sure that's got to be kind of fulfilling in a way to be able to say, wow, that's cool. I found mm -hmm. something rare. Mm -hmm. In fact, I get to tell you know, there's a person at Game and Parks so I know I really 
I think she felt pretty tickled when she knew she found a rare lady beetle and she sent me the photo for identification only to have me tell her it was something far more rare than she even thought. Oh, yeah. It was the third Sweet. record for the whole state ever. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> so that was kind of cool. But yeah, you know, and that's kind of cool. For I think that kind of makes people want to do it more. Absolutely. Yeah. So. so Matt, what goes into uh, specimen collecting? Um, I know you got you're on the grasshopper side for sure. But yeah, yeah, and I do tiger but, beetles, cicadas, butterflies. Right. What goes into that? Uh, um, collecting the specimens, um, storing them, displaying them, and of course, why is it so important to have these specimens? Which we already talked about that yeah. last part. But so a lot of it depends on the organism you're after. Like grasshoppers, you know, I can catch them by hand with a net. Uh, for USDA, I actually do. Kansas and Nebraska, I go through their sweep net samples. So that's where you just sweep the net around and you get a random picture of just what's in the pasture. And we do that to kind of estimate probably about breaks and stuff like that. Uh, But then other things, you know, there's certain things you catch by hand. There's even ways of trapping insects. So you can put a little black light and then they get in the bucket. So there depends on the insect what you do. There's a number of pitfall traps work for ground dwelling and nocturnal things pretty good. So, and I think that's the fun part because I'll often do that while I'm photographing. And sometimes I miss an opportunity where I'll, Try to photograph them first, and then they get away on me. <laughs> Something rare, but in fact, the, that the second specimen of that ladybug I just talked about, I have the second record for the state, but I never caught it. I got some really uh, nice photos, and then it flew away. <laughs> At least I've got nice photos. Yeah, so. absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, so sometimes that happens. And then the second part, so the collecting can vary. Uh, there's also the storage before you actually. So some things I can just throw in alcohol until then. Some things will discolor. So. I always have dead stuff in my freezer, sadly, and little dead stuff. These things but, happen. <laughs> but And then the curation part gets tricky because that's, again, we put a pin through it, like insects. The nice thing about insects is because their exoskeleton is mostly a carbohydrate uh, protein mixture, and the carbohydrate that they have predominantly is chitin, and not many things can digest that, is if you dry a specimen and you keep it out of bright sunlight and you keep it in low humidity and you protect it from other insects that want to eat them, they'll stay in the very position you dried them in for yeah. two, three hundred years. They might fade a bit. I mean, the, like the, the British National Heritage, uh, Natural, Natural, oh, what is it? The Natural History Museum. I mean, these aren't the ones they have on display, but there's specimens back there that pretty much go all the way to the time of Curlus Linnaeus and back before that, early 1800s, wow. late 1700s. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're a bit faded now, even though they've been in darkness. Hmm. But... So are there are there ethical considerations with with insects? Uh, not it's it's changing now. Years ago, that's the thing. Of course, vertebrates you got all these. That's why I don't work much yeah. with vertebrates because you got paperwork. Now, if it's an endangered species, like for instance, there's things I have to get a permit if I'm going to collect an endangered species, uh, which I are hard to get. I just don't. I I'll photograph them and stuff, but I don't. I just whereas Dr. Hoback I work with, he always he does the American bearing beetle, so he has permits every year for that. So I'd fall under his umbrella when I'm working with him. But then there's also things have changed because in the old days, people, you know, didn't really care about bugs. I mean, they came yeah. in their garden all the time. But things have changed to where now we're seeing a lot more, and this is a good thing, that a lot more people are getting concerned of, well, you know, we should protect these butterflies. We shouldn't kill any. And it's got to be kind of, I, I you know, it frustrates me once in a while because there are kind of a league of people now that are saying, well, you should never kill a butterfly and da-da-da. But the problem is a lot of those people don't realize that some of these species are very hard to ID the point where some of them, you literally, I mean, I know of a couple of some lady beetles, you literally have to extract the internal genitalia and examine them under a section scope to identify them positively to the species. 
And so that wow. some people don't realize the diversity out there. That yeah. There's that many species that look. Grasshoppers are a nightmare. I'm one of, I'm probably the only person in the state by far that can identify pretty much everything in the state because it's taken me many years to get to that level. Yeah, it would. And so, you know, and so... Now, the good news, there's also the thing of if you collect, your likelihood of wiping out a species by overcollecting is pretty low in most cases. I mean, I'm sure. capable of it in some cases, just like a poacher would be, but I, I have to go about it, and I try to make sure never remove more than 20% of what I see at that site. But for endangered species, it does get different. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. there is a black market for even endangered insects. Of course. And so then they could deplete those. So ethically, again, I'm glad people are, are starting to bring that up mm-hmm. because... You know, the other drawback is if more people do it. So these little, you know, 4-H insect collections and what I do in my class probably isn't going to have an impact. But the people that collect insects should only be really those people that need to. Because if everybody and their brother does it for a hobby, yeah, that's just probably going to have an impact after mm-hmm. a while. Right. So oh, that's interesting. So um, this might be kind of a silly question, but uh, to me, a lot of insects of the same species look alike. I almost identical. Yep. Like you've mentioned, uh, we're, we're, we're humans. All three of, at least I think we are. Um, and, and all three <laughs> of us look, always <laughs> <the aliens. laughs> we yeah. just had that funny conversation. It never <laughs> but, turns out to be aliens. But all three <laughs> of us look different. Why is that? Well, it's, it's because of our own perception. Cause we, we have a reason to be able to tell each other apart. Believe it or not, when you really look at these things, they can tell each other apart. I, you know, I watch the way grasshoppers, grasshoppers are quite social animals. When you look at their interactions, I mean, these males will try to intimidate the hell out of each other and things like that. Hmm. And they clearly recognize, in fact, so if you look at them, you'll start to notice, I pin enough of them, and I can, I actually, it's funny because there's a lot of specimens, individual specimens. I mean, I have almost 10,000 grasshoppers in the collection. Probably... At least half of them, I can remember catching that actual specimen. Wow. Just because there's little subtle things, that, you know, and then the only, again, it's because, you know, I've learned to recognize those differences. Mm-hmm. They can. Uh, one of the neatest things, and this is kind of cool, there's a couple of uh, studies that show this, and I think that's just fascinating, that there was a recent study, was, so bandwing grasshoppers, the ones you see with the colorful wings are often kind of earth colored, they clearly know what they look like. And we're finding they tend to gravitate towards soils that match their own color. Even after they're attracted to a light at night, they'll go back to these places that oh, they yeah. blend into. So they seem to be self-aware of what they look like, which That's is neat. also kind of cool. So that yeah. takes that to a whole new level. Yeah. But I think it's just because we are able to identify what we need to. We just learn to, to tell features apart. You know, again, probably because I'm a specialist in this, or my ornithology class. You know, my students, I learn to know my bird calls. And it's funny because I can be in a pasture and hear two male uh, western meadowlarks. And to me, each individual sounds slightly different. You know, it's like, well, he sounds, uh, you know, that part of the note's a little different on that guy than this guy. Yeah. And that's just individual birds in the same pasture. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just sort of a, a, a thing that, you know, you get used to, you know, you only have to tell each other apart. But the more you work with these things, you start to notice, okay, and then you get these weird ones, a cool stripe that nobody, you know, you've never seen on them. And <laughs> there we go. Yeah, that's... I like if you remember gremlins. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. Yeah, they're characteristics. <laughs> <laughs> so aside from uh, identifying grasshoppers, Matt, uh, any other hobbies that you'd like to share with us? Oh, gosh, I have a lot of them. I actually, uh, I'm not a geologist, but I do collect rocks, especially agates. I, you know, on eBay, I tumble them and I hunt them locally. Uh, yeah, so I kind of collect coins, old coins, but I'm not active. I have to find something rare. I mean, yeah. I've never sold any of them. I just got tons of stuff in a safe. Uh, let's see, another big one. I fish a fair amount. Yeah. I mean, I do pretty good whenever I go, but yeah, I only find so much time for that. And then, 
Trying to think other thing. Up for a while there during the pandemic, I got into fishing lure making, which was kind of fun. I was painting them, and well, now I got this the time. Yeah. But now I haven't had time for that because I know Justin Hag wanted to do a story about it, and I kind of and I, I kind of I don't want to say I kind of avoided him a little bit, but <laughs> I was just kind of self conscious because I didn't think I was that good at it. I, I mean, my, my lures were pretty cool, but but then he wanted to do a story how I do it, and I'm like, well, I haven't done it in a while now, anyway. It's just kind of <laughs> one of those passive. And I got so many of them now. I made more lures than I'm going to use in 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> they were quick to make. And it's kind of cool because you can buy these lure bodies and hooks dirt cheap. And, you know, yeah. you can make them and paint them for a quarter of the price you're going to pay at somewhere like Baumgars. So, okay. you know, and it was just kind of a fun hobby to pet, like you said, pass the time during the pandemic when you're stuck in your house early in the pandemic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> going mad for a month. Yeah. You know? so, Didn't know what was coming next. But so there's that. I'm trying to think. I just have a lot of hobbies. Photography is a big one. You know, it's amazing how many. I just looked in the other day on Flickr. I think I'm at like 16,000 photos on Flickr. Oh, wow. Yeah. Which is crazy because if they go under, I mean, a lot of those metadata I don't really have. I mean, I've Yeah, you got them backed up, right? I don't know. I mean, oh, I've got to check that. Because yep. the photos yep. <laughs> I have on other flash drives, but all the text associated with them, I don't, I mean, I didn't. I don't know. As I, my younger years, I just never saw the importance of recording the date all the time. I mean, I did in some of my younger photos. Like my little sister was kind of funny. I just posted a photo on Facebook that she thought it was so funny. It was that hundred. So she was probably all of like four years old. And I planted a bunch of Atlantic Giants, and I actually grew her plant. This was going to be her plant. And do a, she got like 156 pump bumpkins, so I have an old picture, and I actually did put the date on it. You know, and it's almost as tall as she is, and she's got her hand on it. Nice. <laughs> and now, of course, she's, you know, well into her 30s. So it's like, yeah, that was you back then. You grew this beast. That's so, awesome. But, yeah, and then I got for a while, I just didn't date my photos as well as I should have with a little patient. But now I'm, now I'm strict about that. So, yeah, I don't know how you back that up when it's all on Flickr, and I don't know that they do, but I don't yeah. really download it from there either. Also created a, uh, a pollinator paradise in your yard. Yeah, and... that's one of those things again. I, 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 you know, and it's funny because, so me being the naturalist I am, I, I always, uh, periodically I ask, well, what is the purpose of a lawn? I mean, partially it's to keep from tracking dirt in and stuff like that, but it's like, I don't see that reason much reason to have a lawn, and I don't like mowing it. And so, as you know, so my yard's a pollinated paradise. I've got garden all over. I got more asparagus than I know what to do with, and it keeps getting thicker every year. So, <laughs> and you can never have too much asparagus. Sure, because well, it's, it's that easy to grow. I mean, it, pickle it. It's good for oh, red, yeah, it's good yeah, and red yeah. beer. Yeah. Did I give you some of it? Uh, no, not pickle. Oh, I got no. a jar. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a good stuff. Uh, and then, but you know, and so and asparagus, I love because once you get it established, I got so many fruit trees. I got currants. I've got you name it. Just because I don't know. I just, I, you know, again, to me, uh, I always got to be doing something. There's mm-hmm. got to be productive. And it's like, lawn to me is just a lawn. It's something you got to maintain. And me, you know, some people are proud of their lawns. I'm not that person. And so, but, I, you know, again, I love the pollinators and, you know. And the nice thing I do, as you probably noticed, I got mostly perennials. Mm-hmm. Because out here, you got to outcompete the weeds, field bind weed. And so I get these perennials that eventually just take over. And so, you know, the bees love it. I mean, I, I know I get people jealous because people... I don't see any honeybees in my yard, and it's like, man, I got like 200. Dragging them all away. So, well, well, Matt, we've reached that that time uh, during the interview where we have five quick questions for you. So yes. First thing that comes to mind: What's a favorite movie of yours? And I thought about that for quite a while. I thought, you know, this is going to be a fun one. So at first I was torn between Spaceballs and the original Blues Brothers, but I two will classics. Say yes. The Blues Brothers, hands down, for so many reasons. Yeah. I mean that. You know, I grew up on that movie, and it just, you look back, I've seen countless movies since, and just everything about that movie, it was, you know, a lot of people don't see it as a musical. 
But it was way more than a musical. It was a musical and then so much. And mm-hmm. so people forget about the fact that it was not only an excellent musical, and I mean, there's just so many funny scenes. I mean, the one I just, I was telling my students, uh, about, I forget, it was an after-class conference, and I was talking about the, the, the shopping mall chase. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> just the whole idea. And then you hear about the backstory, because I didn't realize, I was watching a documentary on it, that Dan Aykroyd wrote the original story himself. Mm-hmm. And then the producer just did a wonderful job. But the music, I mean, you look at the artists in there. I mean, it's just a fun movie. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, and I look at any other movie, and it's just, yeah, other movies are great for different reasons. And like I said, Spaceballs, again, there's so many classic lines. But even Spaceballs, I mean, Mel Gibson, the guy's a heck of a writer. But he still doesn't have the dynamics that, you know, Blues Brothers has. Sure. The original. I mean, they're just so much, the more you watch that movie, they're just, it's just such a rich movie in so many ways. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, that's a good answer. But like I said, I thought about it for a while, and I'm like, the more I thought about it, I'm like, there's nothing comes close to the Blues Brothers. No, the second one, obviously, they never should have even done the second one. No, no problem. That was an abomination. (laughs) Matt, what's a hidden talent of yours? Oh, gosh, I have a number of weird ones, I guess. (laughs) Uh... I can whistle and hum at the same time, but I'm not as good at changing notes on both simultaneously, <laughs> which is probably hard on my vocal cords sometimes. But yeah, it's kind of funny. Oh, that's a different. That's a different skill. Yeah, I do it when I'm driving. Sometimes you could produce some cool sounds because I'm always jealous of birds because birds have two sides operate, so birds can normally make two sounds at once. Okay. And I don't know where I learned to do it. You know. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can, yeah, dude, I just did it on prompt, so it's like not a, real controlled, but... It sounded like that world You can do it really loud, though. Or or when you're, yeah. you know, get, if you get relaxed, you can do it quite loud and accurately. But it's hard to change notes on both simultaneously because it's kind of like doing yeah. two things with both hands at once. It's something. Yeah. It's, kind of, it's just kind of fun <laughs> when you're driving because I'm one of those people I'll drive you know, 800 miles on a trip and just... You know, something to keep the sanity on the trip. Sure, yeah. You got to <laughs> yeah. do it. Come up with new, you know... Rhythms and stuff like that. <laughs> the album's coming soon, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't know. I do lyric writing just on the on the side for fun. In fact, that whole thing, I, you know, and so people listening will find this funny. And it might be helpful advice if anybody's going to be having kids soon. Was the, the whole joke I had. If, if you name your son, give him the middle name Scott. Be very careful because depending on what your last name oh, yeah. is, they could be a bear. So I actually am working on a song about kind of a joking one. Of, with a couple of people had the middle name Scott. There were a couple of cattle rustlers. And nice. Last name's Worms, <laughs> and the other one's like last name Warts. <laughs> Someone's Scott Worms, someone's Scott Warts. <laughs> That's right. But yeah, I, but the problem is to do it, i got to have two different storylines going simultaneously. So I've never wrote a set of lyrics that complicated, because normally you just have one storyline. Yeah. I've <laughs> never done anything with those lyrics, because I'm not a musician, unfortunately. But Although three of my, my three nephews on my my dad my, my older brother are actually all musicians I just never uh, went that route for some reason great talent yeah. um, so think back to the time when you were a college student what's the best advice you received gosh a lot of them one of the biggest ones I think was just you know sort of just you can do it I mean and I think this sure. generation needs to hear that more and that you know, don't get down on yourself. This sort of thing happens to everything. There's these general th- sayings because, and especially this generation, because they don't have the confidence of our gener- my generation, where it's just sort of rub a little dirt on it, so to speak, and you're oh, fine. Yeah. But, you know, and so, you know, because I, I look back and, you know, when I went back and did my undergrad after those seven years, I remember uh, Dr. Bob Rosenfield, he was teaching the ecology, the ornithology, I took a raptor ecology course from, and I came back as a non-trad, but I was really worried. I'm like, gosh, am I master's material, my PhD material? And he's like, Psh. You'll do fine. And just to hear those words alone, you'll do fine mm-hmm. from, you know, because even at, my, at that, that age, I was, I look at professors as sort of, 
I'm not worthy, you know, and, you know, and I'm sure students look at us that way. I'm, I'm sure my freshmen walk in my classroom scared to death of me. I mean, now they, they, you know, by this point in the semester. But, you know, to hear those words from somebody, you, you know, who's, a, who's a, you know, he's a well-known ornithologist. And so just those words were so reassuring of, okay, if he says I can do it, I can get, I can do this, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so things like that. And I think even other professors, other teachers, and I think people that are listening that are teachers know that just a few little words to a student that's struggling can go so far. Yeah. I mean, just that little reassurance of you can, you can do this. I mean, it won't be easy, but you can get through this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I went through this kind of thing. And I think sometimes that's the other part is to say, to admit that you went through this too. Yeah. I think that because, you know, they don't, our growing up was different. But I know, I look at my student struggles. I had a lot of those same struggles. You know, I even battled a little bit of anxiety when I was a student, quite a bit of it. I didn't have test anxiety, but I had a lot of other anxiety. And that's just normal. You, mm -hmm. you just get through it. Just don't don't freak out and overwhelm yourself. And, you know, if you have problems, you know, feel free to shoot me an email if you need clarification or something like that. I mean, that's, I think, the kind of school we are. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And so, and students, I think, is, is again, is... Don't be afraid of your professors. I mean, yeah, some of them are less approachable than others, but, you know, we're, yeah, we have a PhD, but in the end, we're still people. We were once just like you. Yeah. <laughs> and I think and I think the hardest part, I will say, though, uh, not as something as advice for students, but I will, um, an admission, and my zoology students have heard this from me, and I think it's some students, it's worth it them to hear, because it is, it's an admission of our, our struggles as teachers. One of the things I found, and there's a, a psychological phenomenon called the Dunning-Kruger effect that explains a lot of this, but the longer we are a teacher and we're an expert in our field, the problem is we get a better and better handle on what we don't know, but we don't realize how good at what we are, we are at what we do. And so the mistake we make is we tend to think that things that are easy for us are easy for everybody. So when I assign a writing assignment to my students that I could do in an hour, i got to remind myself, you know, it's probably going to take a freshman 10 hours to do this. But it, it's easy to mistakenly say, oh, they should be able to do it maybe twice the time. Mm -hmm. But you got to keep thinking back. What was I like at that age? And it is hard. I'll admit to the students right now, the older I get, the harder it is. And I got to keep reflecting on, okay, if I was a freshman, think back to when I was like less than half the age I am now and how little I knew and I thought I was smart. You know? And so, but yeah, it's, and so it's, a, it's basically an admission to students that we try our best, but it's... It's not easy, and and I don't think it ever is, and that's just part of teaching. The better you get at what you do, ironically, the harder it is to actually teach it. Well, I'm glad you at least argument. recognize it and critically reflect. Oh, yeah. So uh, what is your favorite place on campus? Oh, gosh. Sea Hill. Well, Sea Hill's always <laughs> well, a good Well, actually, one. Briggs Pond, too. Although the science building will probably become the new one, because I do miss the old building. Just Yeah, you know, all the just, collections in place. Yeah, and, and it just... And we just had space, and now we're going to have so much more space. Yeah. And they're just, I will admit, they're just so many good memories. And they're, like I said, when I brought up, you know, Monty Fickle and Ron Whedon, I mean, they're, to me, their spirit is like part of that building. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. I, you know, it just, everything I knew about them was pretty much there. Yeah. That's why I'm glad we're, we, we're we not losing the building. The building yeah. We did, yeah. We, we renovate it, but we add to it, but the, the spirit is still there. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, we you just look at the history of this school, the amazing people we've, you know, some of my own advisees, they look where they are, and sure. some of them become more than I, you know, that's one of the funny things. If I reflect back on when I was a machinist, I worked with a lot of interesting people, so to speak, in those ways. And one of the things I always got frustrated by were these, you know, I had a, you know, one foreman in one place who was clearly one of these people that never wanted to have to work harder than he did. And so he never wanted you to learn as much as he knew, because then you were a threat to his position. Uh -huh. 
And there are people like that on the workplace. But I, I, I just think that's so unfair. And so my view is, you know, what I, I have, my philosophy is, I want my students to become more than I ever could be. Because really, that's they're the next generation that's going to have to, unfortunately, eventually take care of us, so to speak. So, you know, and I don't know. I think the, the problem that we have, too, as professors, and I'll, I'll admit this, is we've got ego problems. I mean, I think ever, there are a lot of professors that deny that, but I think the more you deny it, the worse it becomes. And so, you know, a lot of prof- people, and I think that same Foreman thing is sort of you're going to stoke your own ego, but I, I don't think that's fair to what we do or teach. And I think, you know, we got to humble ourselves and just you know, do the best we can for students and not be jealous that they become more than we do. I think, if anything, I'm proud of a lot of my students. Yeah, yeah, I celebrate it. Yeah, for sure. So, Matt, last question. What is one word that comes to your mind when you think of Shattern State? Community. That's ever since I've been here, it's just there's such a strong sense of community amongst the students, amongst the faculty, Really, the whole town. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, if something happens in town, you, you hear about Everybody it. Everybody knows about it. You know, yeah. and I think that's just an artifact of a lot of small towns. And I think yeah. that makes us unique amongst the, the, the campuses. Because, yeah, we have some other small campuses, but we're really the most, by far the most, both, you know, you hear the term rural, but we're also remote. Yeah. And so, and I think just the way that people are out here because of that. I mean, mm-hmm. the Sandhills, you know, people, you know, your car breaks down and you're sitting along the road. A part of it, they're checking you. They're just worried if you're messing around. But a lot of them, they'll check to make sure your car running. I mean, I do that to people, too. It's just the way people are. Where I grew up in Milwaukee, your car breaks down along the road. You're just lucky people will run you over. You mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's just that sense of community out here is always, ever since I've been here, I just, I love it. Sure. That's a great thing. Well, thank you for joining us, Matt. We certainly appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. Good. I did, like I said, never did a podcast. I didn't know what to expect. I think you nailed it. Yeah, good start for for it. Yeah, it was fun. Great. Thank you. You got some great topics. I appreciate that. Thank you.